Let's pray for the bread. Father, as we come to you uh, thinking about uh, the fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Father, without the shedding of blood, there is no atonement for sin. And once and for all, he came to make that sacrifice, Father, so that we could have our sins forgiven and stand before you. Father, help us to, to think about, look back and think about that sacrifice, to, to look deep within ourselves and understand what that means to us and how we should live our lives, Father, to look forward to the day when we'll be with you in heaven. But Father, until that day, help us to never forget this important, important, um, the love and the sacrifice that you gave for us so that we could have these things. And we pray this in the name of our son, Je in your name of your son, Jesus, in Christ's name, amen. That concludes the Lord's Supper.
We also are commanded to give. Throughout time, God has asked for the first and the best. And he has given us his one and only son and his very best. And as we give back today, I encourage you to think about that as you make your sacrifices. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to give back to you. Father, Jesus left heaven, was so rich and became poor so that we could become rich spiritually. And as we give back a portion of the things you've given to us, Father, help us to truly examine our hearts, to think about what we're, we're doing and, and how we're doing it, and with a grateful heart, make our contributions to you to continue your work. Christ's precious and holy name, amen. That's all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 348. Jesus is all the world to me. 348. It's at this time that the young children ages 2 through 5 may go to the children's Bible hour. <clears throat>
Please be seated. The invitation to him this morning, number 744. 744, what will your answer be? Brother Chris. Good morning. Today we're traveling to Corinth. As we close out Paul's second missionary journey, we find him in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. So grab your Bibles and be flipping over to Acts chapter 18. Of course, we know quite a bit about the Corinthian congregation. Paul writes at least uh, two letters to them that we still have. He writes four, uh, but we don't have the other two. But the two that we do have provide all kinds of information about this congregation. As we've been uh, going through this series, we're calling it Upside Down because as God meets people along Paul's second missionary journey, he's going to flip their world upside down. It's really right side up, right? This is the way that he's always intended it to be. He's never intended people to be selfish. He's never intended us to be out for our own. He's always intended us to be looking out for other people. He's always intended us to live for righteousness, to be in intimate relationship with him, not just half-hearted relationship, but intimacy with him, like we had in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. He's been trying to find a way to get us back to that level of intimacy. And right now, the church, all the way from Jesus' death and the institution of the church in Acts chapter 2 to this very moment, the church is the answer. Ultimately, heaven will be the answer. But right now on earth, the church is the answer to that level, that type, that intensity of intimacy that we can have with God in this relationship that we share with Him. And so we are looking at the world upside down. Or really, the way that He's always intended it to be. And everyone else is looking at the world upside down. And as we've walked through these, these several chapters... And as we've met the congregations that are housed in these, these cities, we've seen God turn their worlds upside down, haven't we? We've seen change and transformation in some of the most beautiful ways. But we've seen a lot of pushback as well, haven't we? Because change is difficult. Transformation is hard, right? And so there has always been pushback. And today is no different as as God meets the Corinthians, and as he sets, as Paul sets foot in the city of Corinth, there's going to be notorious pushback. In fact, that's what both of the letters that we still have uh, of the, from Paul to the Corinthians, that's what they're about. They are struggling with the implications of the gospel. We resemble that remark, don't we? We struggle with the implications of the gospel. Once we come to him, the rest of our life is really struggling with the implications of the gospel. What does it mean to live inside of Christ and to look at the world the way he looks at it? And so we, we struggle. And so maybe today's text will be helpful for us as we think through what it means to struggle with the implications of the gospel. We're in Acts chapter 18. Paul meets a couple there that you are going to love. If you don't already know them, their names are Aquila and Priscilla. You meet them here in Acts chapter 18 for the very first time. Um, we know quite a bit about them. These, 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 this couple, this, these two people are a, a power couple of the first century. 
Um, they are tent makers like Paul is, and if they're not Christians, by the time that they meet Paul in Corinth, they will soon become Christians because Paul lives with them. And anybody Paul spends a great amount of time with, they eventually hear the gospel. These two people's hearts are open. You're going to find them as good soil as we think through their lives and what we do know about them throughout the rest of Scripture. Uh, Jesus talks about people who are good soil, right? These folks, their hearts are open. They want to know truth. They want that intimacy with God. And they're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to have it. Some of us don't go far enough. Some of us stop short of that intimacy because transformation is hard. And so we've stopped short. But these, these two, this couple, they don't stop short. They are willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to have this intimacy with God. At least Aquila is a Jew. The, the man, the husband, is a Jew. We don't know whether Prisca is or not. Some translations call, uh, in some places in Scripture, she's, she's called Priscilla. Uh, I, I think her actual name is Prisca, and maybe Priscilla's almost, almost a nickname. But her name seems to be more Roman than Jewish. And she's never called a Jewess. And so maybe she's a Roman, but for Whatever is going on here, what you really need to know about this couple, first of all, is that they live in Rome, but sometime between 41 and 50 A.D., they're kicked out of Rome, along with 20,000 of their best friends. About 20,000 Jews are kicked out of Rome between 41 and 50 A.D., sometime, we're, we're not sure, scholars aren't sure about the exact date of this edict, but sometime during this about nine-year period here, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, is going to get fed up with the Christians and with the Jews, and he can't separate the two. And so he's just going to kick them all out of Rome. He doesn't want to have anything to do with them. They've been causing so much trouble. It's, it's the Jews causing trouble, <coughs> like they do for Paul, and in these cities where the gospel gets into the cities, the Jews will eventually cause havoc with them, with the Christians. And that's what's going on in Rome. Claudius seems to have a pretty good relationship with the Jewish people. He's fought for them on a couple of occasions and has been very generous to them on multiple occasions now. But their hatred of this this new sect, as he would see it, of Judaism, these Christians, he can't stand it. And it's causing political problems for him. There's too many uprisings. The Romans don't like uprisings. If you'll sit there and be a good citizen, pay your taxes, and not try to overthrow the Roman government, you can do just about whatever you want to do. But you can continue your life. But if you're wanting to fight, if you're wanting to cause insurrections, if you won't sit there and be a good citizen, Rome is going to have a problem with you. And this is how Claudius decides to deal with this particular problem. You need to leave Rome, all of you. There's about 20,000 of them. Aquila and Priscilla are in that group of people that leave. And they head, apparently, to Corinth. At least it's a stop along the way. They're going to move around quite a bit during their lifetime, eventually landing back in Rome toward the, end of their, ends, the ends of their life. Um, but here they are in Corinth because 
Claudius has kicked them out of Rome. They meet Paul. Paul also is a tent maker. These, 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 this couple, um, that's their job. That's what they do. Um, they're leather workers, tent makers. Not exactly sure what they would have been making exactly. The scripture says tent makers. History tells us that those, those would probably be sellers of leather goods, that kind of thing. Um, and, but for whatever they're selling, Paul sells and makes the exact same thing. And so he buddies up with them and actually lives in their house. They share their reputation with him. Now, that's an important bit for us to understand about them because what happens, historically speaking, as we've walked through the last five or six weeks as we've been meeting these congregations, what happens to people who live, who allow Paul to live in their house? Well, sometimes they're beaten, right? Sometimes they fall upon hard times because Paul, they're associated with Paul. And the Jews and sometimes the Gentiles make life difficult for him. And so if you are willing to share your reputation with Paul, you're willing to share your house and your life and your things with Paul, if you're willing to be around him, you might catch some flack. For that, and that flack might come in the form of a beating or a beheading, and so these this couple is automatically off the bat sharing their reputation with with Paul. They're going to do work in Corinth with Paul. They're going to be his co-workers, but eventually they're going to head to the Ephesian to Ephesus. That's where we're headed next week. But they're going to head there uh, in several years from now. Paul and they are going to spend around three and a half years, or excuse me, about a year and a half in Corinth. And then they're going to move to Ephesus and they're going to spend about three and a half years there. The church in Ephesus meets in these, this, people's, this couple's house. Again, you see the danger to that. Um, things are quickly heating up for Christians, uh, in, 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 even in uh, Ephesus and even in Corinth. There's pushback because the implications of the gospel are difficult to accept, right? We all struggle with it. We struggle to live righteous lives. And those who are on the outside hearing Paul and others preach about the possibilities and the potential of being inside of Christ, what that's like, I have to give up too much. I have to push back against Rome. I I even have to push back against me, my own uh, inclinations, my selfish nature, who I want to be, my dreams and my aspirations. I have to push all that away, down, so that I can take up him. That's hard, and I don't like that. And the Romans won't like what I push back against them on. And the Jews on this side don't like what I'm pushing back against them on. And so they're going to throw stones at me. And I've got the Romans throwing stones at me. I'm throwing stones at myself because I struggle with the implications of the gospel. So when when this couple houses the church, they're taking on all that responsibility. They're all in. Aquila and Priscilla, they're they're all in. You can't find a more dedicated couple in the New Testament. They're they're sold out. They're devoted. Later, you're going to find them in Rome, as we mentioned earlier. Um, Guess what they're doing in Rome? They're housing the church again. 
right? This is who they are. I don't know, I'm assuming that it's a dangerous job that no one else wants. There's also um, a practical standpoint to housing the church because your house kind of needs to be larger. You know, you need to be able to fit 30 to 50 maybe people in it. Ephesus is a big congregation. Corinth is a larger congregation. And so they are needing to house multiple people in their in their homes, or at least allow them to come worship on Sundays. But don't miss the danger aspect to this. I need you to see these people as wholly devoted. Their life is in Christ. He's everything to them. And nothing else matters. we got to grab a hold of that idea. Uh, and this is just some of the stuff that, that you get to see, um, ways that they do that. In Romans chapter 16, verses 3 through 5, when, he, when we meet them there in Rome, Paul says that this, this couple risked their necks for Paul. I don't know what that looked like. I, I don't know that that's recorded. I, I don't think that that's recorded for us, what exactly they did. But Paul said they sacrificed themselves for me. They sacrificed their safety for mine. They're all in. They're completely devoted. Again, in that same passage in Romans 16, he's going to say, in fact, it's not just me that owes this couple a debt of gratitude, but in fact, all the churches of the Gentiles do as well. We would think all the churches of the Gentiles owe Paul a debt of gratitude, and indeed they do, but he says they owe the same debt of gratitude to Aquila and Priscilla. And eventually, toward the end of their life, there they are, back in Ephesus, in this difficult congregation. Paul's left Timothy in Ephesus to set things straight. You remember in Acts chapter 20, as Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, they are looking forward to some rough times, um, some opposition to the truth, some people that are struggling with the implications of the gospel. You first, me second, right? You come before me, and then me I have to subvert all of my wishes and all of my dreams and all of my desires to His. Some people in the Ephesian congregation are going to struggle with the implications of the gospel. Maybe even their eldership is struggling with the implications of the gospel because we're human and that's what we do. It, we struggle to, to put ourselves on the back burden. We struggle to put other people first. And so this congregation, the Ephesian church, is going to be hit repeatedly, time and time again, Satan is attacking them, possibly even from their own leadership. And so Paul leaves Timothy eventually in this city of Ephesus, but he's not alone. Aquila and Priscilla are there as well, and they're still working in Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, as Paul is saying goodbye. He's about to die for his faith. They might find themselves in a very similar situation very soon. We don't know. After this point, we, we lose Aquila and Priscilla to history, and we'll have to wait till heaven to interview them better, I hope. <laughs> but what we really need to see here is how devoted these people were. They got it. They understood it. You can have Jesus or you can have everything else. And they said, yeah, I'll take Jesus. But this is going to cost you everything. I understand. I understand completely. And I'm happy to give that over. I'm happy to do everything in my power to make his name great. And if my name suffers for it, that's just fine with me. Because there's no authority, there's no power in my own name. There's no goodness in me. It's all in him. And so if I bring attention to him, that's great. 
That's what I'm here for. I want intimacy with Him. And if I can't have intimacy with anyone else, if my spouse turns against me because of the righteous life that I'm living here for Him, that's fine. If I lose every friendship I have because I'm longing for the intimacy with Him, fine. If I have to sacrifice everything for the intimacy that I want with Him, fine. Deal. That's a good deal for me. I'll take it. No second thoughts. No looking back, right? Sometimes we make that deal, but we, we look back. We, we try to take it back. I, well, I, I want that intimacy with you. I want that salvation, but I, I also kind of want to do what I want to do. On occasions, I, I want to I take back the reins. And Jesus says, that's, that's not how this works. That's not how this covenant, that's not how this agreement between you and I work. You're mine. I bought you. I paid for you. And now you're my slave. Happily so. You chose this. You don't get to take the reins back. You see that in Aquila and Priscilla's life? The devotion that this couple had. I think that's why he starts off his adventure in Corinth with this couple. I think that's why Luke records they're meeting them first. Because the Corinthians are going to struggle with the implications of the gospel. Here's a couple whose life is on full display for us. And they didn't struggle. They were completely sold out. They were completely devoted to him. No looking back. I don't want the reins back. You treat me better than I've ever treated me. I'm sticking with you. The Corinthians are going to struggle to do that. This is uh, a map of Paul's uh, missionary journey. But you need to skip down to uh, the second missionary journey, but you need to skip down a couple of verses uh, to <coughs> verse 5. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. After Paul introduces us to Aquila and Priscilla, he's going to give us another example of a guy who doesn't have any reservations about following Christ. He, he doesn't turn back once he's put his hand to the plow. That's an illustration Jesus would use, right? Once Timothy's put his hand to the plow, he doesn't look back. He's, he's balled in. He's completely, 100%, he's all in. Read verse 5 with me. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. That's something that the Jews are going to have consistent problems with. That's where they're going to push back. Well, I want you to focus in on Timothy there. Is this the first time we've seen Timothy since Macedonia? Since... Thessalonica, is this the first time we've seen him? No, it's not. We know that from the book of Thessalonians, from 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we know that Paul, or that Timothy rejoined um, Paul and his, and his missionary um, trip. He rejoined him in Athens. But then Paul sends him back to, to Thessalonica to make sure that they're okay. What's going on in Thessalonica? Why, why could Paul not go back himself? Why did Paul have to leave so quickly? He's in danger for his life. In fact, he was beaten in Philippi. He is 
run out of town at the risk of his own life in Thessalonica. Those same people show up in Berea, and he's forced to leave Berea too. In fact, the brothers there, the new congregation, plead with him to leave. So when he gets to Athens, uh, Timothy has rejoined him by that point. But Paul sends him back to Thessalonica to shore up the church. That's not in Timothy's best interests. Timothy could very well, maybe he did, we're not told, get hurt because of this. So what? Timothy's all in. If this is what's good for you, the Thessalonian church, I'm going to do it. But it's not in your best interest, Timothy. You might get beaten. You might get ridiculed. Certainly there's going to be pushback here as you try to evangelize in these areas, just like there was with Paul. At the very least, people are going to mock you. At the most, they might kill you. Yeah, that's okay. It's what's good for you, the Thessalonian congregation. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to help you. In both of these people's stories, both Aquila and Priscilla, as well as Timothy, as well as a great many other people, but specifically here in Acts chapter 18, as we meet the Corinthian congregation, we see this idea of Corinth believing I come first. I'm greater than you are. Me over you. But that's not the way of the gospel, is it? What the gospel teaches us is you first. Right? I count you as more significant than myself. That's Philippians 2, 3. You see that in Aquila and Priscilla's life. You see that in Timothy's life. You see it in Paul's life. You see it time and time again. That you are more important than me. This is a backwards way of looking at it, isn't it? Me over you. That's, that's the world's way of looking at it. But remember, when the gospel comes into a city and a church is founded there, believers are there, God flips the world upside down. And you look at it the way that he always intended you to look at the world. You before me. Now we have several examples of that. Let's give down to verse 6. Acts chapter 18, verse 6. You're going to meet a couple more people here. These next couple of verses. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. As usual, the Jews push back against Jesus as the Messiah. These particular Jews seem even more stubborn than the ones that Paul has encountered before. I, kinda, I think that because of his statement here. He, he makes this, this visual statement. He shakes off his clothes and, I'm done with you guys. He's, I don't know how long he's been preaching to them specifically, but that's his MO, right? He starts out in the synagogue, and then he, when is pushed out of the synagogue, moves to the Gentiles. Now he's being pushed out of the synagogue uh, or, or leaves the synagogue because they refuse to listen. They're of this persuasion that I come first, that what I want is important. And they can't grab a hold of this idea that Jesus is everything, that you need to get behind him, that you need to agree with him, that he is life and there's only life in him. They can't grab a hold of it. In the next verse, you 
you meet a guy who's grabbing a hold of it. Like the, like the guy, the picture of the guy that's on the side of the, 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 the cliff, and he's grabbing a hold of the, the anchor of the tree to hold himself up. That, that's what this guy's doing. His name's Titius Justice. He, when Paul leaves the synagogue, he goes to this guy's house. He's not a Christian at this point, of course. He is a worshiper of God, which most likely means that he is uh, a convert to Judaism. But now, he's listening. His heart's open. And he allows uh, Paul to teach in his house. What's he doing? Just like Aquila and Priscilla, he's taking on the responsibility of being close to Paul. I don't know anything else about this guy but I tend to believe that he came to faith. Let's, let's continue here in verse 8. You're going to meet another guy, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. This guy believed in the Lord. He's not just a Jew. He's the leader of the Jews in this city. He is the ruler of the synagogue. But his heart is open and he's willing to listen. Like Mike was saying this morning, if you're paying attention as Jesus is walking... Uh, to, toward Golgotha, you, you notice some things, his head bleeding. You, you would have put together, if you're paying attention, you would have put together the scapegoat analogy that God intended you to get. You would have put together the sacrifice, the Passover lamb. You would have put these things together and you would have seen, ah, aha, of course. There's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I see it. But you have to be paying attention to see that. Here's a guy who's paying attention, right? Crispus is a Jew, and he feels, no doubt, like every other Jew does as Paul enters his city, and he pushes back against him. I am sure of it, but the more Paul talks, the more this guy listens, and the more his heart opens up. And so his whole household is baptized, and... Paul, or Luke tells us, many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and they were baptized. People are listening. They're finally listening. They're finally opening up. They're finally getting on board with what God is demanding from them. In verse 9, Paul's going to have this vision in which the Lord says, Don't be afraid. Why would he need to Paul, tell Paul not to be afraid? You ever thought about that? Paul's human, just like us. And with as much pushback as he's had over the last, we don't know how long the second missionary journey lasted, but across this span of cities, you've seen it just like I have. Every time he enters a city, what happens? People push back. Sometimes they push back with rocks. Sometimes they push back with beatings, right? Sometimes they just push back with words and threats. Sometimes they just about kill you or the people that are close to you. So as Paul enters Corinth, I think he's even more afraid than he was when he came into Philippi or Macedonia, that whole region. Corinth is known for immorality. Um, they are uh, 
to Corinthianize is, is, a, is, a, is a saying in the first century. It meant that you were a bad person. Uh, so you would look at somebody like a thief or somebody that was a murderer or somebody that was an adulterer, and you're such a Corinthian. Like it, their, their name was used as a derogatory slam against other people. And so Paul enters this city that's known for its immorality, and he's teaching them that you come second. That righteousness is important. That you don't get your way. That you have to follow him. Beyond everything else, you follow him. Man, that's difficult, isn't it? That's difficult for us. And people don't use our names as a derogatory slam. Paul has to know as he comes into Corinth, there's going to be some significant pushback here. If I was beaten in Philippi, good gracious, now I'm in... Maybe we would say Amsterdam, the red light district, or somewhere like that. A place known for its immorality. That's Corinth, times 10. If Philippi beats me, Thessalonica forms a crowd. I'm going to die here in Corinth. But what? What's he do? Every single day now. He, we're told that he goes to the, to, to the synagogue on the Sabbath. But now, he's not bound to talking to the Jews anymore. Now he's talking to Gentiles on the daily. He's putting himself second so that other people can come to know Christ better, so that that intimacy that he knows with Christ, they can know too. Because that's where the power is. The amazing thing about this is God assures him that there are people in Corinth that are his. They don't know it yet. They, they haven't been baptized yet. They, they don't know Yahweh yet, but they're going to. Their hearts are open and they're listening. They're paying attention. And they're ready to subvert themselves to Christ. They see the implications of the gospel and they're okay making these sacrifices. This is uh, what's called a bema. Paul is going to be taken to this very one. This is the one that's in Corinth today. You can go see this today. I don't think you can touch it because the things are around it, but if no one's around. Um, so you can go see this today, and this would be the very one that Paul would have stood on. It stands about seven feet tall, so some of it's gone, um, but... You can go see this today and in just a couple of verses. In fact, in verse 14, uh, the Jews are going to bring charges against Paul. He's teaching all these things that, that we just don't agree with. Um, he's saying that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no way that Jesus is the Messiah because the Messiah wouldn't be beaten. And they kept saying that kind of stuff. And they bring him in front of a guy that is named Galileo. He is Seneca's brother. If you know Seneca from history, this is his brother. Interesting little tidbit there. Um, Roman historian Seneca, this is his brother. So um, they bring him before Galileo, who's the, the proconsul of this area. He's the, the governor. He's the guy in charge. And they expect him to be beaten. They expect Paul to be beaten by Galileo. And he doesn't, he doesn't do that. Uh, in fact, he says, you guys are just talking about, this is a Jewish thing. You guys are mad that he's 
that he's calling one of your Jewish people a Messiah and you don't want him to call him a Messiah. I don't, I don't care about this. I'm a Roman. You guys go deal with this on your own. I don't care. And so the Jews get so mad that they beat the new ruler of the synagogue. Remember, Crispus came to faith. So what happens to him? He's escorted out the door, <laughs> right? He's no longer gets to be the, uh, the ruler of the synagogue. A guy named Sosthenes takes his place. And so Sosthenes is the one who is leading the charge, I guess we can put it like that, against Paul. And I would assume he is chosen as the new ruler of the synagogue because of his anti-Christ leanings. He is, I would think, the most fervent anti-Christ Jew in Corinth. And now he is the ruler of the synagogue and he's brought these charges against Paul. But Galileo says, you, you didn't have enough. You, you didn't make your case well enough and I don't care about your case. So you guys need to get, out of my, get away from my bema. <laughs> Go on. The Jews take Sosthenes and they beat him. They beat him. Now, what's so interesting is this isn't the first time you've heard Sosthenes' name, is it? You heard it earlier in 1 Corinthians. What's his name doing in 1 Corinthians? Right? 1 Corinthians 1.1 says that a guy named Sosthenes is riding back to Corinth with Paul. Paul probably writes Corinth when he's in Ephesus, which is just his next stop. So not too long after he leaves Corinth, Sosthenes, a guy named Sosthenes, is with him, and he's riding back to Corinth. These guys know Sosthenes. I wonder if it's the same guy. How beautiful would that be, right? The guy that was so anti-Yahweh, the one that was so pushed back against all the things that that God was saying. Now he is Paul's fellow worker in the gospel. I don't know how common Sosthenes' name would have been, but I hope it's him. The Corinthians struggle with the implication of the gospel. You see that time and time again throughout their, the letters that Paul writes to them. In fact, their letters are laundry lists. Some folks in Corinth have written down questions um, brother so-and-so thinks that, that his gift is better than mine, and I don't think that's true. What do you think, Paul? Uh, also, brother so-and-so said that it's important that, uh, that you baptized him, Paul, and I was baptized by Peter. Aren't I just as good? And list after list after list, problem after problem after problem of them putting themselves first and everyone else second. They didn't get it. They weren't sold out. They weren't devoted Maybe they were going to get there. But they, like us, struggled with the implications of the gospel. And it's interesting to me, in Acts chapter 18, you see example after example after example, all the way down to possibly Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, who don't struggle at all with the implications of the gospel. These guys are saying at the very beginning of their faith, I'm willing to be ridiculed. I'm willing to be beaten. I'm willing to have my things taken. I'm willing to die if this is what's necessary because I'm not going to betray him. I've bought in. I believe he really is the Messiah. and there's. Some, I'm willing to die for that. If we're struggling with the implications of the gospel, 
we're going to have to get on board with Christ. It's awfully hard in the 21st century American Christianity to be completely devoted to Him because there's just as much pushback in our culture as it was in theirs, isn't there? People make it hard, don't they? Your co-workers, maybe your family, your friends, our culture, media, everything says you can be a Christian as long as it's a watered-down version. As long as you're not completely sold out, as long as it doesn't change your life, you can be a Christian. It's fine. We'll, we'll get together uh, and we can go party or we can go sleep around or we can do whatever. We don't need to meet together with the saints on Sunday to worship. We don't need to study our Bibles. We don't need to pray. We don't, we don't need to transform. We struggle with the implications of the gospel just as much as the Corinthians did, don't we? But we've got some awfully good examples before us of people that were completely devoted. People who were willing to sacrifice everything so that they could share the intimacy with Christ that he's always wanted from us. Today, if you're looking for that intimacy... It's still possible. It's just as possible in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. You just have to come to Christ to be submerged into His blood, to have your sins washed away, and then you can have relationship, intimacy with Him. This morning, if you're struggling, you've already been baptized, and culture is hard, and life is hard, and you're struggling, maybe with the implications of the gospel, we want to pray for you that you can be everything that God would have you to be. If we can help you in any way this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing. Someday you'll stand at the heart of high. Someday you'll stand and you'll see. Someday you'll answer the question of why. What will your answer be? What will it be? Now is the time to free.
Good morning, church family. Hope everyone is doing okay this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are glad you decided to worship with us this morning. If you can take a moment to fill a visitor card in front of you um, and place it in the black box in the back of the, uh, in the back, um, we'd great, greatly appreciate that so we can have a record of your attendance. Uh, life group news. We have a lot of life groups meeting. Uh, next Sunday, life group one, that is Rick's life group, will be meeting in the middle auditorium for lunch after services. And then the following Sunday on August 20th, life group five, that is Mike's uh, life group. Oh, okay. Next Sunday as well, sorry. Um, life group five will also be meeting. Um, in the old, old auditorium uh, for lunch. And then uh, August 30th, Life Group 3, 2. Man, August 20th says 30th on here. So, um, okay, so August 30th, I'm sorry, 20th. <laughs> August 20th, uh, Life Group 3, that's Jeremy's Life Group, we'll be meeting for lunch. Um, let me say that over. All right, life group one and also five will be meeting, be meeting for lunch next Sunday. And then uh, August 20th, life group three will be meeting uh, for lunch after services on Sunday. All right, um, polishing the pulpit is the, this Wednesday from August uh, 16th through the 24th. So keep those who are uh, going to polishing the pulpit in your prayers. Also, the preschool uh, apple tree is out. Uh, Weeshine's apple tree is out in the middle foyer uh, uh, doors. If you can take an apple and help preschool out with their supplies. Um, I know uh, for this, for this uh, school year, I know they'd greatly appreciate that. A couple of youth events going on. Uh, this Tuesday, uh, the teen, there will be a teen devotional uh, at the Knapp's house for boys. And then also the girls will meet at Portia Davis's house for a pool party and hot dogs. Um, and then on Friday and Saturday, August the 11th through the 12th, <clears throat> there's a camp out at Lake, uh, how you say that? Vesuvius, thank you. Uh, for pre-K to 12th grade, uh, bring your own tents for that. Um, if you're wanting to ride the bus uh, to Lake Vesuvius, Vesuvius, uh, meet at uh, 1015, uh, check-in is at 11 o'clock. Updates on our prayer list. Remember, continue to keep John Klein in your prayers. Uh, he's going to have a heart valve uh, replacement and more tests done on August 14th. Keep uh, Jimmy Wilgus and Sean Maynard and Jim Haney and Amber Spitzer in your prayers as they continue with their cancer treatments. Um, keep Steve McLeod in your prayers. He's asked for prayers uh, this week for his family, so keep him in your prayers um, this week. Also, keep um, uh, Terry Baker's mom in your prayers, Emma Swango in your prayers this week. Also, keep Merritt in your prayers as well as she's going through uh, uh, type 1 diabetes. Uh, and, <clears throat> and also, keep Tanya Shamblin in your prayers as well. Tanya Shamlin is Sandy uh, DeLapp's niece, the daughter of Larry and Andrea Shamblin. Uh, Tanya's been diagnosed with cancer, so keep her in your prayers as well this time. Um, 
I'll have her address out on the foyer board if you can send her a card. I know she'd greatly appreciate that, a card of encouragement. That's all the announcements I have. Looking forward to seeing everybody again later on this evening at 6 o'clock. We'll sing one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Let's please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 839, When All of God's Singers Get Home. Sing the first and last verse, and then Brother Darren Baker will have a prayer. <clears throat> Gonna soar from delight in the city so bright. We'll be glad when you have us there. How the ransom will rain at this hall in this prayer. When all of God's singers get home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the opportunity to meet on this another Lord's Day and come together and worship and sing and praise. Father, we pray that our worship service has been pleasing to you and is in accordance to your word. Father, again, we ask you to be with those on our sick list, those on our hearts and minds who are struggling in whatever manner it may be. Lord, you know their needs, and we just ask you to continue to be with them and strengthen them and lay your healing and loving hand on them. Father, we offer a special prayer for our young people as they go back to school soon, especially our high school and college aged kids. We, we just pray, Lord, that in their struggles and the temptations that they will undoubtedly face, that you will be with them and strengthen them and help them to be the example and not the follower. And, show people the way to you. Father, we, we ask you to uh, continue to be with the church here at Rome. Strengthen us in number, strengthen us in faith. Father, we pray for our leaders here at Rome that they'll make the right decisions in the things that they do. We pray for our life groups and we just pray that, uh, Father, you'll be with all of us and, and bless us, Lord, with your love and the hope that Jesus gives, gave us through his sacrifice. Be with us this week as we go into uh, a new week and help us to set an example that uh, will be in accordance to your word and help us to shine your light. Father, we thank you for Jesus, his sacrifice, and the hope that he gives us. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Dad said he stopped him. He's uh,